Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby. Hello, and joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology is the last Boy Scout, Edwin Davis. How are you doing? Is it all right? Yeah, doing very well. I have something of a sore throat today and for pretty much the whole week, so uh, I apologise if I sound a little too croaky or overly sombre, because uh, before we started recording, you said it sounded like I had some terrible news to impart to you. Yeah, or you were kind of readying yourself for a, a stint on Stars of Their Eyes as Tom Waits, which <laughs> no one's ever done on Stars of Their Eyes. I'm not really sure why. No, maybe because the show's not been on the air for 10 years. Yeah, but that's a good point. It, it certainly would have been an interesting one, sort of Saturday tea time television, a man wearing a kind of fedora and singing about dwarves. Mm, yeah, <laughs> although it would have been really funny to see. Like tonight, Matthew, I'm going to be Gigi Allen. And then just kind of coming out and defecating on the stage and just, you know, starting fights and having some heroin. But, you know, you don't get to see, really get to see that. It's all like Krista Burr. So, although I think Jarvis Cocker is probably regretting being Rolf Harris on uh, on Celebrity Stars in Their Eyes all those years ago. Yeah, that, that was uh, probably one of the more regrettable choices in retrospect, along with that episode of uh, the Tweenies where they had a Jimmy Savile impersonator. Oh, it just all looks so sordid now. Uh, <laughs> everything's been ruined. Speaking of things being ruined, in the news this week has been a kind of baffling piece of Hollywood faff in that they have announced that they are proceeding with a origin stories for Die Hard, which seems crazy because they seem to have they've already done one. It's called Die Hard. Yeah, as, as a lot of people have said. The prequel to Die Hard would surely be just about a marriage falling apart. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because there's not a huge amount more to it. The whole point of Die Hard is that John McClane is a normal cop in an extraordinary situation. The idea that uh, he there was a story beforehand where he went around and was doing kind of insane, incredible things all the time just makes that film a little less interesting. And it makes you wonder why he's not going around saying, oh, this is fine, this, I've done this all before. <laughs> Yeah, how can this shit happen to the same guy? Never, uh, <laughs> not yet. It's confusing, and it's I, I kind of had to catch myself a little bit about perhaps being kind of like, oh my god, this is Hollywood, absolutely out of ideas. It's a disgrace. How dare they kind of do something to a classic like Die Hard? Before realizing and kind of reminding myself that Die Hard was supposed to be a sequel to Commando, and mm. is kind of based on a book called The Detective, and they were trying to make it as a Frank Sinatra vehicle. And so basically it was a kind of bungled property anyway that somehow kind of gained traction as being a kind of a classic of its type, which it is. It's a great movie. But, you know, it was Hollywood running out of ideas then. <laughs> it's just, they're just running out of ideas in a different way now. And also, it, you know, the first sequel betrayed the character of John McClane by the fact that it didn't have him just limping around on his shattered feet for the entirety of it from all of the nerve damage from having kind of glass jammed in them. You know, yeah. as soon as they revisited the character and essentially just made him kind of a super cop who would be great in any situation, mm. then they they basically destroyed kind of any integrity there was to it. Yeah, and it was... Die Hard was such a kind of template setter, wasn't it, for action movies? You've got Die Hard on a rig, Die Hard on a plane, Die Hard on a, on a train, repeat, repeat, repeat. 
that even when it got to Die Hard 3, they just took what was supposed to be a Lethal Weapon uh, sequel, the script for that, and just changed it, hence why all of a sudden it had a black sidekick for no reason. So, like, it, it's not even as if, like, the format of Die Hard lends itself to being sequelized or prequelized. Yeah, it's just, it, it has increasingly become just, you take a scenario and just drop John McClane into it, which is, I mean, this is kind of all the way of saying that I don't really care that much that they're going to do a prequel because they've already ruined it enough. Mm. And I, But I also know that whenever Die Hard's on TV, I will sit down and watch the whole thing because it's an amazing movie and all the shit they've done to it since then can't tarnish that. Mm. I just hope that whatever they do do with it, there is a point at which William Sadler does Tai Chi naked. <laughs> because Especially now with his 2015 body. Yeah, which is kind of, I reckon he's in decent shape, Sadler. He's he, he can still cut it, but it's it, it's a kind of a weird one that like if they can't think of anywhere else for it to go, let's just do an origin story, and um, that seems to be the kind of go to thing. And I kind of just wonder where that's going to end. They can do like Vera Drake origins. <laughs> Is that something that's going to happen? I hope not. I I think I'm going to try and submit a script for the Die Hard prequel, but it will just be a transcription of Ingmar Bergman's scenes from Marriage, and just mm. see if I can get that on the air. Yeah, so I, I think that's the only way to really take it, make it pure, bleak, and just kind of people disintegrating. Mm. I'd watch a Die Hard prequel which is centered entirely around Hans Gruber, mm. like young Hans Gruber, played by like Michael Fassbender or something. How he uh, puts his team together and their their first job knocking over a minimart or something. Mm. That really weirdly multinational group of terrorists like <laughs> in is you know, they've just got like literally every person the United Nations of terrorists. Um Yeah, the Benetton ad of of well, criminals. If Hans Gruber knows anything it's how to promote diversity. Yeah, and Hollywood's really been lacking on that recently, so mm, absolutely. I mean, he can save Hollywood from itself. Yeah. Speaking of saving Hollywood from itself and perhaps going back to the well one too many times, Steven Spielberg casually dropped into press duties for his current film, Bridge of Spies, that he would probably, that's his words, not mine, probably just do Indy 5 with with Harrison Ford. That's not a good idea, is it, at all? No, because really, I mean, the fourth one, everyone knows, the fourth one was terrible, but again... Indiana, the Indiana Jones series is another one where you have a great first film and then each subsequent one has not been as good and has kind of run out of ideas a lot and it's been mined so much not only in films but also the TV series, video games and stuff. It's kind of hard for them to see them doing anything interesting or new with it unless it is like like old Indiana Jones but like so old he can't really do anything <laughs> and he just sends other people off to do his, own, his bidding for him, which I think would probably suit Harrison Ford's level of investment at this point. Mm, yeah. I think like maybe they could do it like an educating reader thing where he's just, he is like a desk bound and he's just got like a really annoying person who comes in and asks him questions. It could be like Wonder Boys, but with Indiana Jones. <laughs> Imagine that. He wears a pink dressing gown all the time. There's a story behind it. It's not very interesting. And yeah, I'd watch the shit out of that. would be fantastic. Or they could have him get the Bill Murray contract for Ghostbusters 3 when it was going to happen, which would be, I'll be in it if you kill me in the first five minutes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or Men in Black 3, which is like Tommy Jones, uh, Tommy Jones, Tommy Lee Jones being in it for like 10 minutes and then it goes back in time. <laughs> that That's the solution. We'll get Josh Brolin to play young Harrison Ford. 
he uh, he certainly seems to be in the market for it. He's very good at playing young versions of iconic characters. Men in Black, George W. Bush, you know, these, these kind of iconic characters of fiction. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of iconic characters, God, I'm really good with my segues today. They are on fleek, as the kids might say. <laughs> um, the film Pan, which is uh, directed by Joe Wright, he of Atonement and Hannah and... Uh, other films uh, fame has eaten a massive plate of dick on toast at the box office it has yeah it opened last week the film costs 150 million dollars and it opened to 15 million dollars and if this was in the 70s when films didn't open to very much and they would be in cinemas for like two years (laughs) that'd be a pretty good start you know that's 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 the buildings of a kind of a Jaws-like performance. That's what Joe Wright is saying to the executives right now. Look, guys, <laughs> this is building to something. In two years, we'll be rolling, we'll be Scrooge McDucking around in a massive vault of coins. Yeah, if you keep, if you keep this film in, in 3,000 theatres for two whole years, mm. then we'll be laughing. But yeah, <laughs> it's um, it has been just a colossal failure, bigger than... Uh, even some of the more recent failures, like The Lone Ranger and John Carter, it's just completely fallen on his face and has everyone saying, oh yeah, that always looked like a terrible idea. <laughs> How did no one think that this would be a success? Mm. Yeah, and again with the origin stories. The problem with prequels is they ask a question, they answer a question no one was asking. Mm. And that is especially the case with the Peter Pan stories. Like, well, we know what happens. He gets abandoned and goes to Neverland, and there's not a huge amount of kind of interest in there. So just thinking, having people singing Smells Like Teen Spirit doesn't make it that much more enticing. Mm. And it's it's kind of weird to think that, like, you know, Captain Hook is just a deliciously evil pantomime bastard. Mm. I didn't want to think, well, I wonder if he had a hard, like, youth working in, like, a coal mine somewhere <laughs> where they mined pixie dust. Because and he was I, like a dashing Indiana Jones type. Mm, Garrett, two hands. <laughs> Garrett Headland, what the fuck were you thinking? Yeah, it's it's just an absolute mess. And but but it is interesting. Like we were talking before we went on air, how it seems that there is like one massive flop every year for the last few years in a way that kind of hasn't happened for a while. And I my theory on it is that. Um, I mean, like this year actually has quite a few of them because if you look at things like Jupiter Ascending and that, but mm. like, the, but even Jupiter Ascending made a pretty decent amount of money overseas, which Pan won't. Pan is looking up in awe to Jupiter Ascending, which is not something that many things would do, um, and it just seems like Hollywood seems to have taken the idea that anything can be a success because the marketplace globally is so huge now to the kind of logical, the illogical extreme of just going. Well, if we just put anything out there, it'll be a success regardless of whether or not there's any interest in it. Hmm. Yeah, and I was like I said, we were saying before, we're on with you know us in the world being kind of in the midst of uh, you know economic hardship, I guess, and cinema going becoming more and more expensive with uh, 3D and IMAX and all the extra gubbins. Do you think that people aren't quite as uh, willing to take a punt on something they don't know about? Yeah, I think that that is definitely the case. I think that's one of the reasons why you see a lot of kind of remakes and things based on properties that people know about. But I think in the cases of, in a lot of cases, at least there's been some thought into, okay, would people actually want to see this? Like something like Maleficent, which is a film neither of us particularly cared for. At least that had the kind of unique selling point of saying, well, what if Sleeping Beauty, but from a different perspective? 
Mm. You know, like having an interesting kind of spin on a classic tale as opposed to this, which didn't really have that. It seemed to be, well, what if we just kind of throw a load of production design on it and cast Rooney Mara as a Native American character? Mm. Sure, that'll work. It's weird, isn't it? Because it's like you say, it's a well-worn tale. There's no interesting spin on it. It's like, and it's the 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 things that connect all three of the, those big bombs we've talked about. We talked about John Carter, uh, Lone Ranger, and, and this one is that they, on paper, kind of look appealing, but then there's just something a bit weird about it. Like when I first saw the Pan Trader, I was like, oh, so Hugh Jackman's playing Captain Hook, and then you're like, well, hang on, he's not Captain Hook. He's another pirate. Who's playing Captain Hook? Oh, it's that young guy. Why is he playing Captain Hook? I don't, where's Captain Hook gone? Why is Captain Hook not in this story? Why is Peter Pan going around without Captain Hook? Because the rest of Neverland looks all panny and looks like the, the kind of thing I know about. But yeah, there just seems to be, it's kind of an off-kilter way of approaching that that kind of that like milieu. And it's also very strange just in the fact that there's only really been one successful version of Peter Pan, which is the Disney version. Mm-hmm. Like the rest of history of of cinema is littered with failed attempts to do it. Like I think the only other, I mean, like Hook in the nineties did okay. I think it was pretty successful at the time, but it still wasn't the sort of thing where you think, yeah, this is something that's going to be constantly revisited and is a, a potent has potential for kind of huge box office all the time. That one only worked because it was Robin Williams at the peak of his powers and Steven Spielberg kind of in blockbuster mode. You know, Joe Wright, the man whose like previous film was a very kind of ambitious adaptation of Anna, Anna Karenina, mm. is not you know early nineties Spielberg. That he is not. Yeah, it seems. Yeah, it seemed like a wrong idea from the beginning, and lo and behold, it's uh, it's not gone down too well. Just quickly before we kind of uh, move on, we're kind of as we speak in the midst of uh, the Star Wars Episode Seven hype machine starting to kind of grind into action uh, it's been quiet for a long time but we've got a poster today we're getting trailer tomorrow and weirdly they're debuting the trailer in at halftime in a football match and we were saying before we went on air that no one seems to be saying that's a really strange thing to do when they could just put it on the internet anytime yeah i think the star wars is you know the biggest thing ever you know it's the biggest most successful most iconic film franchise in history if they wanted to advertise a new film at this point they could just like just hand out uh flyers and that'd be enough because <laughs> people would see it people would know when it'd be out mm. so it seems very strange that they would go for like oh, a really big thing of putting it during a football game but and even like like if it was the super bowl i could understand it but just during a football game seems very strange maybe they're doing do you remember when the phantom menace came out and the trailer they stuck it on a bunch of like unpopular films that they wanted to kind of book because people were buying tickets for uh, to go and see the film to just to watch the trailer. So they stuck it on the front of like the siege, that Denzel Washington film to uh, hopefully mm. we're going to boost the box office. Maybe no one really wants to see that football match and <laughs> they're just wedging it in the middle. I don't know who's playing, but like, you know, it's, it's like the Miami dolphins or whatever. They just suck this year. Let's see the star Wars trailer in the middle. And maybe, uh, maybe people watch. Yeah. All of the teams are just vying to see like, Oh, who's the least popular team that could really use the boost. Mm. I, wonder... I think it's the, Eagles playing tomorrow, but I could be wrong. Uh yeah. I want. I wonder which team got the pan trailer at halftime. <laughs> um, yeah, I can't imagine they were too popular. But yeah, it seems like a kind of an, an odd approach when they could just do it kind of anywhere. I suppose it seems 
seems strange given that all the other trailers have been just like released on the internet or whatever. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's kind of like it's almost as weird as when Daft Punk kind of advertised random access memories by sticking a thirty-second ad during one random episode of Saturday Night Live. Hmm. I mean, I guess it gets the headlines, but the same. But again, you kind of think there's probably better ways of getting attention for this. Hmm. Hey, and speaking of Saturday Night Live and uh, continuing my unbroken streak of excellent segues, Tracy Jordan made a return this week, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Tracy Morgan. Tracy. (laughs) Do you see what I did there? Because, yeah, Tracy Jordan was the name of his character in 30 Rock. Uh, Tracy Morgan made a return to Saturday Night Live and a triumphant one, I, I hear. Yeah, and technically Tracy Jordan did as well because they did do a Thirty Rock sketch. Oh but... Jesus! Now I'm 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 in a whole Gareth Evans Edwards kind <laughs> of like nightmare now. Just let's. What was he like? He was good. He was he was funny. He kind of came out there and he was very sincere in his opening monologue where he talked about how much it meant to him that after his accident, people kind of came out and you know they showed such great support for him. And you know what was clearly an incredibly difficult time. And yeah, it was just, it was very, it was a funny episode overall. And there was some really great stuff. There was a really good um, uh, sketch about the democratic debates, which featured Larry David playing Bernie Sanders (laughs) in probably the most kind of obvious bit of casting imaginable. Uh, There was a a good one, a good sketch about people asking where Jackie Chan is. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was, it was like a lot of uh, episodes where they get a, a former cast member back. There was just kind of a warmth to it that, you you get from the Saturday Night Live uh, sense of community. Mm, yeah. And, uh, yeah, kind of it's easy to forget that, like, he nearly fucking died, like, very, very mm. nearly died. And it's a huge deal for him to come back. And uh, it's kind of good to see him up there because uh, he was always good value on Saturday Night Live and 30 Rock. Yeah, and, and it was great to see him just, like, not acting as if it hadn't happened. You know, he, cl- he clearly has been kind of shaken up by the whole thing, but being able to internalize that and make it part of his, his performance as well, you know, like acknowledging that a terrible thing has happened, but also being determined to get out there and be funny again, which is, uh, you know, kind of inspiring. Mm. I really hope now that some executive will green light Sherlock Homey, um, <laughs> which was always my favorite of, uh, Tracy Jordan's fake movies. <laughs> Uh, Samurai Amurai is my favourite just because the title is immensely fun <laughs> to say. That was someone's job on that show, was coming up with those stupid fake films. But yeah, Sherlock Holmes Origins, maybe we'll have that in a few years. <laughs> and there you go, that's the news gone full circle. What are we talking about in this week's episode, Ed? We're talking about Obsession, aren't we? Yes, we are. We're talking about Obsession, the scent from Calvin Clive. Uh, no, <laughs> we're talking about obsession in terms of films about people who are obsessed but also kind of in a broader sense talking about the obsessions of filmmakers and actors and artists in general Mm. i'll kind of jump right in obsession is a very easy driver for narrative and character isn't it in film it's a very well-worn narrative trope and in film it's no different we have a lot of characters driven by revenge or or you know things like being obsessed with with a kind of goal what are the kind of like the big archetypes you can think of that kind of are iconic? In my mind, and for the purpose of this, I kind of broke it down into three distinct kinds. There's malignant obsession, which is, you know, kind of obsession that hurts other people, which would be cases like films or people about stalkers, fatal attraction and things like that. Benign obsession, which is essentially about people who are just 
they they have kind of a hobby or something that they're interested in, but they're not really hurting other people. And a noble obsession, which is people who are obsessed with something and they have kind of a greater goal, but the things may not go smoothly for them. Of of those three, I think the the key example of a noble obsession for me would be something like Zodiac, where mm. the Jake Gyllenhaal character is obsessed with trying to catch Zodiac Killer and to kind of figure out who he is. And that is obviously a very noble thing because it's about trying to solve this, this mystery and to bring someone to justice. But it also harms the people in his life and, and kind of uh, reduces him to sort of a hollow person who is only obsessed with this one thing that comes to define his life. Mm. It's a kind of the noble obsession is is the pursuit of of what they see as right. So you could say something like JFK or all the president's men which is very similar in kind of tone and scope to zodiac they they share a lot of those films but then could you also apply it to something like uh, dirty harry someone who pursues you know pursues that noble obsession perhaps by kind of crossing the line yeah i think that definitely is there's a lot of overlap between kind of revenge films i guess would be in a similar area or the idea of someone wanting to kind of you know, right or wrong in the case of Dirty Harry to kind of catch a killer and someone who is terrorising a city but being willing to do kind of really awful things uh, in pursuit of that. Another kind of example of that in a, in terms of someone kind of being willing to cross lines would be something like Zero Dark Thirty, mm-hmm. which is a film that is kind of about a very broad obsession, obsession and a national obsession with wanting to try and catch Osama Bin Laden and to, about the war on terror and what that you know, the the moral grey areas and the moral transgressions that people make as a result of that. Mm. Yeah. Cinema has always been seen, quite rightly, as a fairly voyeuristic medium. Do you think that it suits the themes of obsession better than perhaps other art forms? Uh, I think it is in that I think a lot of the times it's very good at showing process. And I think process is a big part of obsession because obsession it's kind of there's the bigger idea of just kind of being obsessed with a thing but there's also usually if you're being obsessed with a thing there's a lot of things that go into it so something like one hour photo the film with robin williams kind of has that idea of a guy who becomes obsessed with this family because he processes their photos so there's a lot of emphasis on the physical act of processing images Uh, actually thinking about it one hour photo now seems like incredibly antiquated Mm. the idea of taking your photos to a man who actually processes them just seems very strange and bizarre to me now but also i think things like i mean the 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 obviously big big film about obsession would be something like vertigo where a large part of the obsession there is not just the fact that jimmy stewart's character becomes obsessed with this woman who is uh dead and who seems to have come come back to life but also he becomes obsessed with transforming another woman into that woman. Of course, we've had to go, it's the same woman, but the idea of physically transforming someone into someone else and the various stages involved with that is kind of... Showing that is a large part of what makes that obsession feel tangible and real, and that's why... For example, the, the film version of Vertigo is a lot more interesting than the book version, which kind of has that same sort of thing, but it can't show that development quite as well Mm. is a lot of it down to the fact that film is the medium which really can nail point of view better than most uh yeah i think that is a big part of it in in the sense of the voyeurism of it and i think that it's very good 
at getting people inside the head of the of the characters you know through point of view or just through use of music and sound design in order to kind of recreate the mental kind of scape of of characters who are you know obsessed or or are kind of really focused on whatever their goal is Mm, yeah Uh, i kind of looked at recently at the kind of it was a list i can't remember what it was it was it was like it was one of those really kind of stayed dusty old best films of all time list and it struck me that the, the the three films it had down as being the best films of all time were Citizen Kane, Vertigo and The Searchers which are all films which are they hinge on on characters who are borderline obsessive or you know completely obsessive yeah The Searchers was on my list I think that's it uh, that one would be kind of a noble obsession in that uh, the character of Ethan is trying to save his niece from the Indians, but it's also malignant because his aim is to find her and uh, probably kill her because in his mind, she's been tainted by the association for so long. Mm. Um, but again, that is a, I think is all that I think film is very good at that other mediums perhaps are not quite as good at is they're very good at showing a sense of time passing. Mm-hmm. And in the case of the searchers and Zodiac, they're, they're telling stories that span years and so you can really get a sense of the passage of time and the determination it involves to kind of remain focused on something for such a long period of time because you can show the change of the seasons but also you know just the physical changes that those things have on people Mm, mm. and what about the uh the benign obsession what examples can we think of where i mean they're they're certainly less prevalent aren't they in in film history uh examples where uh, an obsession is perhaps seen as eccentric and, and harmless rather than, than harmful and kind of uh, uh, damaging. I, I struggled to find examples of it that were kind of fiction because there's not a huge amount of drama in that. But I think it's something that you see a lot in documentaries because it's easy to just kind of focus on someone and not have to have some sort of dramatic arc. So the the kind of uh, inspiration for that category for me was the film Tim's Vermeer by Teller of uh, Penn and Teller fame. Where, which is a film entirely about a man trying to recreate the techniques of the artist Vermeer and to kind of try and solve the mystery of how he how he painted by you know recreating all of these different optical devices he might have used and it's just a film about a man who is you know an inventor who has a lot of time and a lot of money who you know travels the world to study all of the very techniques and designs his own optical devices so that he can better kind of you know recreate how the these this painting must have occurred and it is a, a kind of quintessential example of someone pursuing a a, uh, a passion that has no kind of it doesn't really harm anyone doesn't really benefit anyone but you know other than the fact he solves this very small academic mystery about how Vermeer painted but uh, ultimately but it requires years upon years years of his time uh to the extent that you know they at the end of the film they count up just how long it took him to kind of develop these processes and eventually complete a painting in the vermeer style which is something that took literally years mm. yeah the one of the all the examples i can think of as well are documentaries things like uh king of kong mm-hmm. um yep. this kind of obsessive competitiveness over you know a, a 30 year old video game is so kind of quaint it's it's kind of ridiculous and uh, the film that both you and i like which is kind of wrapped in its own category is uh, the film more one call 
um, mm. where it's kind of almost obsession as catharsis. Yeah, or obsession as therapy. Mm, yeah, which is the... an unusual way to approach uh, self-healing. Yeah, to just become so obsessed with a very small thing that it eventually kind of accrues its own meaning. But that that is a that is a very good example of a film that you views obsession kind of as a positive as a positive thing, you know, as as, as literally a thing that can help someone rebuild their life after it's been completely shattered by a vicious attack. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a film that's being remade, I think, as a as a as a kind of a straight up drama, I think. Yeah, which is one of those ones where you, I I find the idea of it being adapted interesting, but I'm not sure what they can add because the whole thing with the documentaries is just kind of a very sad character study. Mm. And, mm. and there's not other than being more kind of able to fully dramatize the attack that leaves its the 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 the, the poor guy, you know, just kind of mentally destroyed. Uh, I'm not sure what else you can really gain from making it as a as a dramatic feature. Mm. Yeah, don't do it. It's a terrible idea. As we were talking before, we went on about the the walk, which has uh, fared considerably less well than it's uh, the documentary that that sparked the idea. Well, yeah, well, I, well, it's made more money than Man and Wire, but it also cost more. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it cost quite a bit more to make, and it hasn't succeeded. But Man and Wire, I think, is also uh, an interesting examination of of obsession in that it's it's not an obsession that you know takes a lifetime, but it is you know, getting an idea in your head, like what if I can put a wire between these two towers and what if I walk it and then devoting years upon years of your life to achieving that goal. Mm. Uh, and I guess that one, I guess that one would fall into benign because it's just about creating kind of a beautiful and strange thing uh, from, for just for the sake of art. Do you think that moving from drama to comedy alters how obsession is portrayed? The big example I can think of is... The obsessions in King of Comedy, for example, are infinitely well. They're no, not really that much different to the obsessions in Taxi Driver, which is its kind of like dark flip side. But because of the tone of the film is different, uh, they appear different. Yeah, I think that that allows you to. It, it, interestingly, it allows the film to be a lot darker in that respect. Because mm-hmm. I feel like the tone of Taxi Driver, which is so bleak and kind of operatic is means that it, it can only go so far before it becomes completely unpalatable but mm. because king of comedy is you know comedic it is able to kind of take the ideas to a really kind of super dark and uncomfortable place uh, in in its depiction of Rupert Pupkin mm. yeah is there any other examples you can think of of kind of like comedic obsession an example for me i think this is interesting just because the director himself is so obsessive would be the life aquatic with steve zissou Mm. where again it kind of is an example where obsession and revenge kind of overlap but uh, steve zissou's uh, desire to hunt down and kill the tiger shark is it called tiger shark Uh, i think it's a leopard shark shark. leopard shark uh yeah to to hunt down the shark that killed his friend uh, at the expense of everyone around him uh, including his newfound sort of son you know is is kind of an obsession that is treated kind of very comedically and makes for a lot of kind of funny situations, but it does stem from the the idea that he's actually something of a broken man who has suffered a terrible lot and is trying to, the only way he can think to cope with it is to go on the warpath, essentially. 
Mm. I thought of it's it's kind of a broad comedy, but it has, does have that kind of dark king of comedy undertone. It's something like the Cable Guy, mm. which yeah, is that's, that's a good one. It's a baffling film, the Cable Guy. I, I rewatched it um, recently to kind of think. Well, it's got a bad rap, and I haven't seen it in years. I kind of watched it. Um, I think it might have been earlier this year, and it isn't very good. It it has a lot of problems, but there's something that's just not quite right about it that makes it not. It doesn't quite qualify as being a straight up turd, mm. um, and I kind of c- couldn't quite put my finger. It's almost it's almost too weird to be bad. Yeah, I, I think I I only ever really remember it for the joke in The Simpsons where Homer I think they're at a planet Hollywood and Homer sees the script for the cable guy behind a glass box mm. and he smashes it and starts tearing at it and just starts <laughs> saying stupid script nearly destroyed Jim Carrey's career. <laughs> Just a, such a weird footnote for that film, mm. given such a specific dig. Yeah, yeah, that's probably the best thing that's come out of it, which is kind of odd. <laughs> but the idea of that is at the heart of Cable Guy, which is kind of obsessively stalking someone for romantic or platonic attention, um, mm. is 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 a very well kind of mind vein, isn't it? Well, I think it it kind of is the basis for most romantic comedies, but they don't treat it as being obsessive. Yeah. Even though I think in a lot of cases the idea of fixating on like one person and thinking they're the only person for you and trying out kind of big romantic gestures, ruining people's weddings and things like that, it kind of at a certain point, you know, that, that if played differently, it could be quite dark and becomes just basically a stalker. But in most romantic comedies, it's treated very kind of, well, treated very kind of comedically. I think that a good example of that darkness on television at the moment in terms of obsession would be the TV series Review starring Andy Daly, Mm. where the character of Forrest McNeil spends his whole time just kind of uh, reviewing life experiences and pursuing them to kind of a a degree that completely destroys his life. And his obsession with, you know, meeting the requirements of these things, wherever they are, uh, eating 45 pancakes or getting divorced from his wife is uh you know i think that's a sign of how you can make uh, again the idea that you can treat obsession like as a funny thing but treating it in a funny way means that you have a kind of license to push it into dark and uncomfortable and weird areas mm. yeah yeah what kind of uh, examples can we think of of the kind of grand obsession things like you know the the classic captain ahab white whale that kind of that ultimate quest for something much larger, larger. Uh, the quest for larger. Well, oh, that, that's the that's I, the world's end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that is obsessive. Um, that is actually that is actually a, a very good example of someone's kind of quest for something that destroys them. Mm. I think a good example for me because I was I was trying to think of ideas of this earlier. I think Werner Herzog was very good at this in that if you look at things like Fitzcarraldo and Aguirre, the Wrath of God, they're both kind of about people's pursuing something kind of very grand in the case of uh Guiri, the wrath of god kind of the search for el dorado and the idea of kind of uh, a man going on a journey and wanted to kind of aggrandize himself in a big way and uh in fitzgeraldo that you know there's just this kind of image of someone dragging a boat over a hill to build a an opera house in the middle of the jungle it's kind of a grand poetic image for people just kind of going on a big quest that perhaps doesn't really amount to very much mm. but an example i think uh, another one going back to documentaries would be something like lost in la mancha mm. where the obsession is trying to make a film and kind of trying to persevere when 
literally everything is against you. Mm. Trying to make a film about someone who is obsessed by windmills. Uh, mm. it, it was, it was, a, it was, you know, double irony uh, on that front. But uh, it's interesting to bring up Terry Gilliam because he is often seen as quite an obsessive filmmaker in the sense that the level of detail he goes to is is kind of pretty hardcore. Yeah, best illustrated in the documentary The Hamster Factor and Other Stories of Twelve Monkeys, made by the same guys who made Lost in the Mancha, mm. where he talks about, they, they talk about uh, in the story that gives the film its title, them shooting a scene in Twelve Monkeys where uh, they basically spent a whole day trying to get a single take, which was just uh, Bruce Willis sat in kind of a cage and then in the background there was going to be a hamster running around in the wheel and the wheel didn't look right for ages. And then when you see the final shot of the film... It's literally there for like half a second. Mm. But for Terry Gilliam, that was the important thing. That was the thing they had to get right. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of filmmakers who who kind of go to that level of detail. Stanley Kubrick, uh, famously, he's kind of the amount of takes and stuff he did and the amount of kind of control he had in his films kind of was borderline obsessive. But if you look at the at the end products of all his films, they seem quite cold and detached. In a, in a in a way that you wouldn't expect what you'd typically think of an obsessive person to come up with. I think it's interesting to think about whether or not, in the case of something like The Shining, which I think is the one that I, I always think of in terms of his obsession just because of what he kind of put Shelley Duvall through in terms of just constantly doing take after take after take, if it's just the case that he eventually wore the actors down so much that they couldn't really be that much warmth. They couldn't really exude that much warmth. They could only exude whatever he wanted and that was you know kind of a very precise tone mm. that apparently you can only get by exhausting your actors another example would be mentioned him already wes anderson i think is a very obsessive person i think there's a there's a question of when meticulous goes over into obsessive but i think that the level of control that is on display in everything that wes anderson has done particularly his last sort of three or four films, you know, doing stop motion uh, with Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is the most obsessive medium there is. And then Grand Budapest Hotel kind of being the live action equivalent of that. You can really see what it means for someone to be completely fascinated by just the smallest detail and making sure that everything on screen conforms to their particular vision. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It was the the level of detail is 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 kind of obsessive there. Apart from, I mean, Werner Herzog is someone who has has kind of spent his career cataloguing obs- obsessive characters. Grizzly Man pops to mind, um, mm. and you can kind of see you can see that throughout his thing. Is it is it he is he obsessed with <laughs> obsession? I think he's obsessed with people in extreme situations, and that they that lends itself to obsession because. You know, if if people are in extreme situations, they're probably they probably put themselves there for some reason. Mm. And I think you can see that in a lot of his stuff that it's people who go out in search of something, and that thing will probably destroy them, either in his documentaries or in his uh, in his dramatic work. I think that that really comes across in in the films that we've mentioned so far of his that these people have taken themselves out of society because their interest or their obsession means that they can't really exist within the normal uh, structures that have been established. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And that, that certainly fit, fits with the image that you have, that, you know, Herzog has of himself as a, a man who literally has walked across continents and, and things like that. Mm. What other um, directors appear to kind of 
have an obsession on the brain. I know that uh, Brian De Palma certainly does. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, well, Brian De Palma has, in terms of his his fascination with Hitchcock, which kind of reasserts itself over and over and is kind of why his legacy is really divisive because people can't determine if he's a just a, a hack who rips off Hitchcock or an artist who you know, takes Hitchcock's ideas and kind of builds on them himself. Uh, I think in terms of, I was kind of thinking about directors who have certain obsessions that kind of crop up over and over again. And I think something like Oliver Stone, his obsession with Vietnam, for example, Mm -hmm. and which obviously is informed a huge swathe of his, his cinema. You know, if you look at, you know, obviously platoon, but also stuff like JFK and Nixon, these are all influenced by it. And they all clearly stem from, his own personal experience, which, you know, clearly influences what he is interested in. And I think his belief in the idea that people were lied to about Vietnam, he himself served in Vietnam and he, his, that cl- he clearly believes that he was sent there on a false pretense is why he's interested in constantly revisiting characters who are involved in a conspiracy or who maybe are trying to uncover a conspiracy. Most kind of, uh, Obviously, in kind of in forthcoming terms, the film Snowden, which he is uh, he's currently working on, is like out in a few months. Which obviously takes the idea of Edward Snowden, who was a whistleblower, who and who revealed to the world these kind of things that were uh, kept hidden and, and kind of exposed them, and in doing so, you know, completely destroyed the life that he had. Mm. And I think that you can really see there that Oliver Stone has kind of through his own personal experiences has been just acting out this, this, this particular obsession for going on 30 years or even getting close to 40 years now. Mm. I suppose the big one uh, in terms of obsession, you probably kind of mentioned him there is uh, Hitchcock and, you know, returning to the idea of film as a voyeuristic medium. There was some dark shit going on there, wasn't there? Yeah. I mean, obviously the, 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 the thing that everyone talks about is his, relationship with Tippi Hedren where he basically just abused her pretty much you know and just kind of uh tried to reshape her to be kind of his new Grace Kelly you know the idea that he was probably really obsessed with Grace Kelly as being the archetypal or the ideal of the Hitchcock blonde and then a succession of actresses trying to remake them in that image Uh, and that's kind of one of the things that makes Vertigo such a great film but also such a discomforting film is that he uh basically found a story which allowed him to have a character do exactly what he was doing to all of these different characters these real life women in his life Mm. yeah the more you pick away the layers of vertigo the more unsettling it becomes yeah i mean like on the on the basic level it's pretty unnerving to see this guy just slow basically go slowly crazy because of the stories he's been worked in, but if you know even the kind of the most basic detail about Hitchcock and all of his work, you start to see it as being kind of autobiographical in a way that you can't really tell how much of it was intended. Mm. Kind of even worse if it was intended for him to just kind of put himself out there so much. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's dark shit, man. Do you think that due to the nature of how you make a film and the fact that the director is so distinctly at the top of the tree artistically and kind of has in um, many cases a degree of control which is kind of borderline despotic do you think that film making by its very nature is obsessive 
Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, I think any creative endeavor is obsessive to an extent because, you know, to do anything, to write a play, to write a novel involves a tremendous sense of self-belief in the thing that you're doing and a, a, a willingness to invest years of your life in doing the thing, you know, to sit down and write a novel, to, you know, record an album or something. But I think with, because of the collaborative uh, aspect of filmmaking, I think the obsession of kind of rises to the thaw because unlike a novel where you kind of have input from editors, but really it's kind of the, the person's vision kind of coming out at, just kind of unfiltered with film, you have to kind of force your vision onto other people. And that means kind of maybe obsessing over it a little more in order to make it actually happen. Mm. And the very fact that you can literally control every detail right down to the hamster going around in the wheel mm. um, must go to people's heads. I'm sure. Yeah. I think uh, that's probably why it attracts people who are like, you know, like a Kubrick, like a, uh, like a David Fincher, people who want to, have just complete control of the art they make and to present i think i think you know maybe also that's part of the challenge of it is to kind of mold all of these different elements together to to create something that is distinctly what you want to put out into the world which is why it seems to attract control freaks because mm, it is the ultimate control freak profession i guess before we went on and uh, probably the kind of uh the, the impetus for us talking about obsession this week was Ed has dazzled me with something that I kind of didn't even know was a thing, which is, and I'm going to allow him to kind of expand on it further, is that Michael Bay is obsessed with the Coen brothers. Please explain it. Well, this is something that was mentioned in a couple of articles around about the time that the film Pain and Gain came out and people talked about how Pain and Gain was essentially uh, Michael Bay's attempts to do Fargo, uh, which it kind of is, you know, kind of based loosely on a real life event and about you know sort of very dumb criminals trying to do what should be a very simple thing and then messing it up but uh and, and then you know and i thought okay well, that that makes sense that people would compare it but then a couple of articles pointed out that michael bay repeatedly casts actors who have worked with the coen brothers you know he has worked with steve Mache- buscemi a couple of times john turturro's been in a bunch of the transformers movies but he also in the third Transformers movie brought in like Francis McDermott and John Malkovich and he's he's basically they are kind of filmmakers that for some reason or other uh, absolutely uh, fascinate him and he has kind of attempted to get as many work with as many people who've worked with them as possible and in the case of um, Pain and Gain which I think is what he's talked about as being one of his more personal films tried to ape their style of storytelling in his own unique and inimitable style. Mm. It's, it's unusual how, um, whilst you can certainly see what he's going for in Pain and Gain, it is you know startling just how little he manages to translate onto the screen. <laughs> because um, we've talked about Pain and Gain a lot off, off air. Um, it's a film that I'm not obsessed with, but I'm slowly... I can't really stop thinking about it, and it's because it's not very good, but it's also... Michael Bay made it, and I can't quite kind of reconcile the things in my head that it's, it's not terrible, and there's some really amazing things in there, but there's also some really awful things in there, and I'm not really sure that Michael Bay knew what he was doing. If he did know what he was doing, I'm not sure he was doing it for the right reasons, and it baffles me that <laughs> if the film is just baffling on every level to me, but I've, I've never really put the kind of Cohen's thing 
kind of together? I mean, is it kind of like, if you think of artists trying to kind of project themselves using other artists and kind of maybe aping their style, I just, I just, they just don't put them together at all. The the kind of only thing I can think of other than the, the actors is that in pretty much all of Michael Bay's films, there's a lot of kind of rapid fire dialogue mm-hmm. and it's all uniformly terrible. Mm. But I wonder if that is kind of where he makes it, mo- even though he's working in an entirely different kind of mode of filmmaking to the Coens, whether or not that is kind of their, their, where their influence is most kind of keenly felt. Is his, He just kind of tries to have people just trading quips back and forth and even though those quips are never funny and they're just kind of really boring if that's kind of the uh, the way that it makes it most it's makes it most fully felt mm. they're not really ever going to return the favor are they either the coen brothers there's not going to be a whole lot of upskirt and kind of <laughs> bombast in their, in their films coming up well i don't know there could be upskirt in hail caesar but it'd probably be a, that uh, roman suit that uh, george clooney's wearing yeah, yeah, yeah. Which Michael Bay will settle for. Um <laughs> but yeah, it's a very unusual kind of tale that one. And I kind of and now I'm going to be looking for it every time I watch a Michael Bay film, not that I kind of make a general point of trying to do that, but yeah. Maybe that's why he's just continuing the Transformers saga. He just keep on doing them and keep on doing them because he's just trying to perfect the style of aping the Coen brothers in a way that no one can discern or pick up. <laughs> it's just so subtle. The the seventh one is going to be just a a shot for shot remake of Barton Think, but it's going to be Bumblebee banging <laughs> away at the type typewriter. Yeah, or he's going to finally do the Yiddish Policeman's Union. Uh, <laughs> oh, that'd um, be amazing! <laughs> Mike, Michael Bay's Yiddish Policeman's Union. Wow, it would be unreal. So yeah, obsession. Everyone stay away from it. It's bad news, and it's 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 very nearly always. In romantic senses, female obsession, isn't it? It's never. I can't think of too many examples where it's, you know, a man obsessed with a woman. And 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 when I say romantic, like stuff like Taxi Driver, I'm not really counting that because it's a protection thing rather than a romantic thing. When you think of things like Fatal Attraction and Single White Female and The Hand That Rocks the Cradle and Obsessed, you know, kind of Misery. All those all those kind of films are always. Uh, is this Hollywood just saying women are evil? Uh, I think it may be more from the fact that a lot of those films are made by men. Mm. But I also feel I, I I do wonder if it's the case that they've worried. They think that if they made it about a man being obsessed with a woman, a largely male audience would look at that and think, "Yeah, it seems right." But <laughs> yeah. like they wouldn't get that that is incredibly creepy, and that the way that most men interact with women is actually incredibly creepy. Mm. Uh, whereas I think that if they kind of push it to the extreme with women, then it becomes more notable. Mm. They can just say bitches be crazy. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Which is, yeah, it's a terrible indictment of the times we live in it. Yeah, but at least it's been a terrible indictment of the times we live in for like a hundred years. Mm. Absolutely. So at least we're not, at least we're not necessarily that much worse. We haven't, we haven't moved the needle too far down. Um, I'd like to say that like that very famous story that um, when Fatal Attraction was finished and a kind of conclusion wrapped up at the end of the film the test audiences didn't like it so much that they changed the ending so they killed Glenn Close's character is probably the worst thing <laughs> that I can think of <laughs> like they were just like yeah I mean we don't we, I've got literally no 
empathy or sympathy for that character whatsoever. So can you just murder her? Because I think it would be fun. Uh, on a on a semi-related note, I went to see Bridge of Spies yesterday, and in terms of weird reactions from audiences, there's a point in the film where snipers are trained on Mark Rylance's character, and there's no reason for him to be killed because mm-hmm. they need him alive to complete a trade. And there was a woman sat a few seats away from me who throughout that scene was just going, shoot him, shoot him, shoot the spy. And I was just kind of like, what the fuck are you on about? There's <laughs> like, there's no gar- there's no benefit to that happening. And the whole film has been dedicated to showing that that guy is actually a decent man trying to do, you know, a, his, the job he was assigned. And it was, um, yeah, it was very unnerving. <laughs> mm. Maybe she had some really bad experiences back in the cold war. Possibly. <laughs> Don't know. Yeah. Very odd. So that's obsession, everyone. And for a little window into our own particular obsessions, let's do a shot, reverse shot, recommends. What are you going to uh, pitch us this week, Ed? I'm going to recommend a film that I watched today and that I've been wanting to watch for quite a while, but uh, never got round to. And it's the John Dahl film Red Rock West, which is a uh, neo-noir from the early 90s in which Nick Cage plays a man who... Uh, loses his job working I think on an oil rig and he or or working just kind of for a natural gas company I think and he is kind of running out of gas got no money and he just drives into this town looking for a job and the first man he speaks to mistakenly believes that he's a hired killer that he's brought in to kill his wife and uh, things devolve from there and he gets involved in uh, all these kind of weird crimes in this small town. He gets chased down by Dennis Hopper. So I think anyone who wants to see a film featuring maybe the two craziest actors of their generation swearing off against each other, uh, Red Rock West is kind of the best one. But I think to, to kind of sum up what makes the film so so great and so enjoyable is it's like the kind of the ultimate reduction of that Hitchcock quote about drama being life with all the boring bits left out. Mm. It really feels like drama with all the boring bits left out it's just constant twist after twist after twist mm, yeah it's a lot of fun red rock west it was a kind of a weird straight to video film in in england and kind of I, john dahl's films did kind of get that treatment last seduction was kind of made for tv and red rock west kind of didn't quite get the the respect it deserves and it's a real shame because uh, both those two films are great i'm going to recommend something spurred on by the fact that the uh, major league baseball playoffs are in full swing and uh, we've been enjoying that this week. Uh, we're actually watching the game now. Uh, dear listener, a little window into what we're doing. <laughs> we're not together. He lives in America and I live over here, but we've both got it on in the background. Yeah, so I'm going to recommend a film sh- called Sugar, uh, which is a film by, is it Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck did it? The guys uh, who, yes, that's correct. Yeah, they did a film called Half Nelson with Ryan Gosling and they followed it up with a film called Sugar, which is a, a film about a, I think he is a Dominican uh, pitcher who comes over to America. He's kind of important as a hot new thing and kind of gets lost in the minor league system. And it's a really kind of great film about baseball, firstly, but it's, it's actually a film about kind of the immigrant experience in America um, and especially the kind of specific experience of people who are brought in uh, and kind of not really even taught how to kind of uh, interacts with society just to play baseball and then when they're not needed they're just kind of discarded on the scrap heap and there's a great kind of scene where they're being drilled of of you know in how to speak English but only to say how to catch a fly ball how to catch a line drive and all those kind of things but then they you watch a group of Dominican lads go into a diner and they can't order eggs the way they want them and it's a kind of like a, a 
great little scene that kind of sums up what the film's all about, really. And it's a great film, and you're well worth hunting down if you can find it. That's it for this week. Uh, I'll say the things I normally say at the end of a uh, podcast, which is you can find us on the iTunes, you can find us on Stitcher, Player FM. Uh, you can also go to our website, which is srspodcast at .podbean.com, and there you'll find the links to everything, uh, the Twitter, the Facebook, and all that good stuff. So, yeah, we'll be back next week. Uh, and until we do return, it'll be goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>